Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew together. And let's take the copy of the Word of God and join together Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And this morning we continue our study in Matthew's Gospel. And we're looking at verses 21 through 23 this morning exclusively. We will read the context just to lay the groundwork. So if you'll join me in verse 13 and then we'll read down through verse 23. And then we'll spend the remainder of our time this morning looking at verses 21 through 23. Join me in God's Word, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I'll also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you, you all, I will give you all the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then, verse 20, he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Now, verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and to be killed and to be raised on the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, as we direct our attention to this passage and to this text, we're finding that immediately within the context, verse 20, Jesus gives his disciples unusual instruction. This is built off of Peter's Profession or great confession that he gives. And then Jesus' wonderful statement that we saw last Lord's Day. I, verse 18, I will build my church. And what a, what a comfort that is, church. As we saw last week, I've been, I've been living on that, on that meat all week. The comfort and the promise and the resolve that Jesus gives as he establishes and introduces the doctrine of the church. But then in verse 20, he tells his disciples not to tell anyone else that he was Jesus the Christ. Times before, we've seen Jesus after a miracle or after instruction, after the feeding of the four or five thousand, they desired to make him king, and he quickly left and escaped. But here we find that Jesus' ways are not our ways. And friend, that, friends, that's a theme of, of Scripture. There is the natural way of man, as we heard this morning, the scripture reading from Proverbs. There is a way that seems right unto man, but the end of that way is death. The natural way. The way of the flesh. The way of unredeemed wisdom and thinking. 
And then there are God's ways. And Scripture makes clear that God's ways are, are not our ways. And friends, that's where the, the tension is, isn't it? That's where the struggle of the Christian life is. That's where the, the tension of sanctification is. That's where we live, unfleshing and unpacking the reality that God has a will and we have a will, and one of those must die, as we'll see next week. Anyone that comes to Christ must die. Jesus makes this clear, not in this text, but in the text immediately following, one of the great discipleship texts of all of Scripture is Matthew 16, 24 through 28. And he makes clear, if you desire to come after me, if you desire to follow me, you must die. So here we see Jesus introducing the fact, verse 20, not to tell others that he is Jesus the Christ. Now, why would Jesus do this? I, I thought Jesus has come to share the good news, to spread the good news, to come and seek and to save the lost. Well, certainly he has, and certainly that's what he's been doing. But the context here is that the Jews are looking for a political hero. They are looking for a, a military savior. They are looking for an immediate kingdom now, here on earth. They want their pain to end. They want their suffering to end. They want a kingdom, and, and they want it now. They want to see a king. They want to live in victory. They want to pay back the Romans. And Jesus knows that they're not looking for him. This is why we've been seeing week after week rejection, rejection, rejection. That's been a theme of the last few chapters. And what Jesus is revealing to us there and here is that they are not looking for a Messiah who has come to be a substitution for their sins. They're not looking for a Messiah in substitutionary form. Their greatest need, our greatest need, is to be delivered from our sin. But they think that their greatest need is to be delivered from Nero. Our greatest need, their greatest need, is to be delivered from the penalty of their sins, to be delivered from the power of their sins, and for us as well. To be reconciled to a holy God and saved from his wrath. They're not looking for a Messiah who's come to be their substitute. Such a Messiah who comes is the way that Jesus has been prophesied to come and is coming. And now here is. This is not what they're looking for. This type of Messiah we will see it will be rejected, betrayed, beaten, and crucified. He would become the sin sacrifice for his people upon the cross. They do not understand what Jesus is saying, and they do not understand what Jesus is doing. In verse 18, we, we saw last week the first mention, I will build my church. They don't know what he's talking about. What does he mean by this, they say? How will he do that? What role will the disciples play? Now, these are great questions. Because it's here that Jesus is bringing clarity in Matthew 16. We've already seen that he's brought clarity at the beginning of the chapter about the signs of the times. He's bringing clarity about who he is. And now he's giving clarity about what he will do and what that means for those who follow him. Verse 13, Jesus' was concerned, concern was, what do the masses believe? Verse 15, he now asked them, what do you believe? And now he's answering the question that this is the way of Christ. And the way of Christ is the way of the cross. So we saw last week, there is no Christianity without Christ. There is no gospel without the cross. 
And what Jesus reveals here is that the cross of Christ is central to God's redemptive plan. And not only central to God's redemptive plan, but, but central to all of human history. Another way of saying it is that everything revolves around the cross. We live in light of the cross. We are a product of the cross as born-again believers. The cross is our power. The cross is the means of salvation. The cross gives great glory to God. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. What I'm doing right here is foolishness to some of you. I don't know who you are, but you know who you are. Or maybe you don't. Maybe you're so blinded that you, you don't have a clue. But what Paul says is that the way of the cross, the message of the cross, is absolutely foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us strange folk here this morning, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here in this text, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's clarifying things that they do not understand. He's shedding light on false understanding. He's addressing key truths that they must know. And here he's pointing both to the cross and what is the true meaning of discipleship in verses 21 through 28. And friends, as he answers and addresses this question, it's good for us to contemplate it here this morning as well. What does it mean to follow Jesus? To some, following Jesus is the easiest thing in all the world. Now, we're making a distinction here from profession, and we're talking about discipleship, the way of Christ. To some, they would hear a message like this because they've never been taught on what true discipleship is, and they're like, my goodness, he seems serious this morning. What kind of preaching is this? This is, why didn't he just lighten up a little bit? And that's what the disciples felt about Jesus. Like, what are you doing? That's, why, that's what we'll see, why Peter says, what, what are you talking about? Lighten up, Jesus. And we live in a land of the lighten up, preachers. Lighten up, Christians. It's no big deal. You follow Jesus, I follow Jesus too. And a host of other things. Lighten up. That is the theme of our our time. Jesus here does not say lighten up. He says get behind me Satan. And then he'll address as we'll see next week. What does it mean to follow Christ? Well what it means to follow Christ is we follow the Savior who went to the cross. And our Savior who went to the cross will show us what it is to deny ourselves. This morning we will frame our thoughts around three brief headings. Number one, the revelation. The revelation of the cross. Number two, the reply that Peter gives. And then thirdly, the rebuke that Christ gives to Peter. Number one, the revelation. Number two, the reply. And number three, the rebuke. Notice there with me in the text, first of all, number one, the revelation of the cross in verse 21. Jesus is revealing to his disciples something that they cannot process. They cannot wrap their mind around what he's saying here in this text. And for many today, it's the same. Verse 21, Jesus reveals the cross. From that time, the text says, Jesus began to show to his disciples, notice here, that he must go to Jerusalem. Not only that he must go to Jerusalem, but what else? He must suffer many things from the elders, the hands of the elders, the chief priests and scribes. Okay. And what else? And be killed Okay, and what else? And be raised the third day. Here, Jesus reveals the plan of God. In fact, Mark in Mark chapter 8, verse 32, in his recording, 
of this account, Mark makes clear that Jesus is before them, walking ahead of them, that he turns around and speaks to them. There's a separation. There is a distinction. He wants them to hear this message. He wants them to get this message. He wants them to know that this is from him to them. And Mark says that he spoke this word plainly. New American Standard, openly, New King James. The point here is that he didn't stutter, he didn't stammer, he didn't speak in innuendo. Jesus turns to his disciples and he's giving them the plan of Christ. Number one, the revelation of the cross. And what we need to notice here in our text is that this is a, a hinge moment. This is a, a right corner. This is a turning point in the ministry of Christ. The first time this phrase was used in Matthew's gospel from that time was actually Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. And it marked a right corner, a hinge moment in the gospel of Matthew. Now we come to it for the second time with the same level of importance. The first time, Matthew 4, 17, Jesus says, or excuse me, it was said of his ministry that from that time, Matthew 4, Jesus began to preach. In other words, this is Jesus the preacher revealing himself to the world as Matthew reveals them to us. And what was his message? Well, that, that's a good question, too. Let's revisit that. Matthew 4, 17. And I'm, I'm reading it to you so you don't have to turn there. But from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. It's at hand. Oh, to hear Jesus preach. Amen? To be able to sit on the Sermon on the Mount and be able to hear him in that outdoor amphitheater setting and the natural setting that he created, and to hear him preach the truth. Well, here we have the next best thing. Not me, but Scripture. And Scripture tells us what he says. Scripture tells us what his message is and was. And we see that first designation of from that time. And everything we've been looking at from Matthew four seventeen till now has been really the first major section in Jesus' ministry. To the crowds. To, the, to those who come to him, those who are needy, to those who need to be healed, to those who need to be fed, to those who need salvation. Jesus is near. Jesus has come. These have been the themes that we've been looking at. But there's a change here in the text. Here in our text, number one, the revelation of the cross in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go. What's happening here? Well, it's signifying change. What kind of change? Here's the change. Jesus is fixing, using Isaiah language, Jesus is fixing his face like a flint to the cross. He will not be deterred. There are no detours for Jesus. He's fixing his face like a flint towards the cross, and he's changing the focus of his ministry. Yes, he'll still minister to the crowds at times in a public way, but an inversion is taking place. Whereas the public proclamation and public attention have been his attention up until this point, now Jesus is shifting to private instruction. The sands of time are sinking fast. And the, the hour is growing late. And it's growing nearer and nearer to the top of, of the hour of Jesus' ministry. He's fixing his face like a flint. And now he begins to pour himself into his men into these band of brothers, into these disciples, these apostles who are living with him, that have followed him. They've left all. They've left their families. They've left their occupations as we've seen. 
And Jesus is now coming to give them a test. He's fine-tuning their understanding. Verse 21, from that time, it not only signifies a shift, but it also tells us that this is not just like a standalone message. It encapsulates in this phrase that this is something that Jesus is beginning to do, not a one-off. He's beginning to teach. He will continue to teach. He is the master teacher. He's preparing them. He's clarifying for them. And here's the problem, like most students. They hear him, but they don't hear him. Here Jesus is telling them, but he's going to have to continue to tell them because they hear him, but they're not understanding. They hear him, but they need clarity. They hear him, but they don't have a category for this information yet. Like a teacher who comes and introduces a new subject that has never dawned on the class. They've never thought about it, never heard about it, never been instructed on it. It's going to take a little bit to get this processed into the minds of the class. Number one, the revelation of Christ. And what is it that he reveals? Well, notice here in the text with me, the first thing that he reveals to his disciples is first of all in verse 21, where he must go. The text says he must go to Jerusalem. Why must he go to Jerusalem? Well, this word must here is loaded. It's a, it's a word that is weighted, pregnant with meaning. And the reason is, is that this is a divine must. As Jesus is, is following the Father's plan and will, as he's being led of the Spirit, Jesus announces to his disciples, the Father's plan for me is to go to Jerusalem. What is Jerusalem? Jerusalem is the holy city. How ironic this is. That Jesus says, I must go to the holy city, and the holy city will become the most unholy city on the face of the earth. I must go to the holy city, the unholy city, and there the Son of Man will give up his life as a ransom for many. Peter, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, reminds the Jews that day, he says, you, with wicked hands, with lawless hands, you've crucified and put to death the Lord of glory. And Jesus says, I must go. Now, there's a number of times in scriptures, in the scripture, where this phrase is used. We will not unpack them this morning, but I'll give you just one. In John 4, Jesus announces to his disciples, I must go through Samaria. If you know the context of that passage and that account, Samaria is nowhere near. What is Jesus saying? I must go there. Well, then he reveals to his disciples why he must go there. And why must he go there? Well, there's a woman that he is to talk to. What a beautiful story, amen? The story of the woman at the well. He begins to have a conversation with her. He begins, he's not afraid of her. He's not afraid of her sin. He's not afraid of her past. He's there. He must go there to save her. This woman becomes a witness for him. She runs into the town after her conversation with him, and she says, come see it's as, it's, it's, as, it's as if it's an announcement to really all the men of the town. And I'm reading into it here. Don't get me wrong. But she says, come see a man. Come see like a real man. Come see a man who told me all things I've ever done. Friends, it's not that she had never seen a man before. He, he tells her, you, you, you're the sixth man that you're living with now. He's not even your husband. You've had five husbands. And the sixth one, he's not your husband. She's blown away at his level of understanding of her circumstance and her situation. He teaches her what it means to be a, a true worshiper, that God is seeking true worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth. 
That was a divine must. Oh, I would love to walk through some of those texts this morning where Jesus says, I must. But here's the key. Just understand this. He reveals here where he must go. And where he must go is to Jerusalem. And not just to Jerusalem, but to a hillside, to a place called Calvary. And he must die upon a cross. And not just die upon a cross. We'll see here secondly, not only where he must go, but what he must suffer. Verse 21 says that he must go and suffer many things. And friends, I want us to know this morning that as this foretells the gospel, this foretells the record of the crucifixion, that Matthew, as we begin to embark, looking ahead towards the end of Matthew, he will give us plenty of time to process the cross, plenty of time to walk through the details of Holy Week and the last days of the times of Jesus before the cross. But I want us to know this morning that Jesus' suffering was not just physical suffering at the hands of Roman soldiers. That is not the gospel. Jesus' suffering is experiencing the wrath of God being poured out upon him for our sin. Was it suffering that he experienced physically? Yes, but that's not the gospel. Many men around him that day were experiencing physical suffering. Other men were beaten. Other men were spit upon. Other men were treated unjustly and uncruelly. Do not hear what I'm saying is to minimize what he went through. We'll, we'll look at that in detail. But, but do not look at what Jesus says here and suffer many things and simply limit it to the ceiling of what men will do to him. See and understand what God the Father will do to him. In fact, turn with me, if you don't mind, just briefly to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, because they have, I want to stir up by way of remembrance, they have these Old Testament texts, but they do not understand, just like many Jews today do not understand. They're blinded to the reality that Isaiah 53 is talking about Jesus Christ. What does Jesus reveal? He reveals that he must suffer. Hear the word of the Lord as we'll let Scripture describe for us the suffering. Verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and yet we did not esteem him. See, that, that's the this world has no value system for the cross. These people did not esteem him as anything. We did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What was his suffering like again? Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken and they made his grave with the wicked, and, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet, verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord 
to bruise, crush him. He has put him to grief. When you made his soul an offering for sin, you shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Friends, an Old Testament passage which the disciples knew, were acquainted with. Here, Jesus touches on that, that passage and others in the Old Testament that when the Messiah comes, he must suffer. Isaiah 53 describes the suffering greatly and in great detail for us. Well, what else does Jesus reveal? Turning back to Matthew chapter 16. Thirdly, he reveals who will lead the way in his suffering. Verse 21, notice, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. What is it that Jesus is suffering? Well, we've looked at Isaiah chapter 53. Here he touches on the fact that there's the rejection of his people, the Jews. They crucify the true shepherd. The one who's come to save his people from their sins, they crucify the Lord of glory. He will be dishonored. He will be rejected. He will be spit upon. He will be tortured, unjustly accused, abandoned by all, abandoned by friends, abandoned by enemies, and abandoned by his father. This is part of the suffering that he will experience. This is why the disciples do not comprehend what he's saying. This is not... The, the hero riding in on the white horse like they have thought of. Oh, but it is. Oh, oh, but it is. And you know what? One day he will ride in on a white horse at his, at his second coming. Not, not the first coming. Here he is, as John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. But the second time, he'll come as a lion who reigns. Oh, they're close. They're looking through a, a glass darkly and dimly. They don't quite understand the cross all they see is glory. Here Jesus reveals, fourthly, and what is the end result? Verse 21, and that he will be killed. I learned a new word this week, and the word is regicide. Regicide. Regicide is the killing of a king over a people. Friends, this is the ultimate regicide. The killing of the Lord of life. The killing, the slaying of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In fact, Peter will be raised up in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. The Holy Spirit will fill him and he'll stand up on the day of Pentecost. And he'll say it like this. Men of Israel, these men here, not the disciples, but what Jesus is foretelling. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Him being delivered up by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death. What Jesus is foretelling, Peter will stand up and the Spirit of God will use to stir up their hearts to the new birth. They will be convicted of their sins. They will cry out, what must we do to be saved? What hope may we have? Fourthly, we see... Verse 21, what his triumph will be. Notice he says, and I will be raised up on the third day. Jesus is giving his disciples concepts that not only they have not understood clearly or ever seen before that the world has ever seen before. This is something that 
No one has seen in the history of the world the literal, personal resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's revealing to them the plan. This is the plan of God before the foundation of the world. As we see in Jesus' words, this is the non-negotiable plan of God. Disciples, friends, men, brethren, I must go to Jerusalem. So don't try to sidetrack me, but follow me. And as we'll see next week, take up your cross. Deny yourself, and you follow me as I go to the cross. In fact, Acts, going back to Acts 2, verse 22, we make it clear that this is God's plan. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Verse 24 of Acts 2, whom God raised up. Verse 32, this Jesus whom God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, Peter says, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. This is the promise of the resurrection. This is the hope of the gospel. This is our hope here this morning. For friends and brethren and men and sisters, let me just remind you all here this morning, this is Resurrection Day. <laughs> resurrection Day is not, not just in April or March some years. It's not once a year where we put on bright colors and have fun and do things a little bit differently and all those other things. We may do that, but every day is Resurrection Day. This is the Lord's Day, and it's Resurrection Day. We gather in the power of the risen Savior. We are led of the Holy Spirit as He leads us into all truth. We have the privilege of looking back and seeing this instruction that Jesus gives to His disciples, but knowing the rest of the story. It's a beautiful thing that God has shed His love abroad in our hearts. He's given us grace. He's drawn us to Himself. He's opened our eyes to show us the beautiful treasures of the gospel, treasures in darkness. Again, why must these things happen, Matthew one twenty one, so that he will save his people from their sins, to fulfill all righteousness, to redeem all creation, to redeem his people. This is the hinge. This is the change in Jesus' ministry. This is the turning point. This is what it's all about. It's not about ultimately bread and circuses. And if Jesus never does another healing or another miracle, it's not about any of those things. It's about this, as he goes to the cross. And this is the beautiful benefit of following Christ and resting in him, following his gospel call in Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. His disciples will find out what he means in this sense. What is his yoke? Take up your cross and deny yourself. I will be with you. I will give you grace, but follow me. It's not abandon all discipline and abandon all difficulty and everything gets easier. No, verse 29 of Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me as I go to the cross. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the revelation of Christ. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Come to Him, rest in Him, follow Him. We'll find more about that next week. Secondly, not only, number one, the revelation of the cross. Secondly, the reply of Peter. We've seen Peter at his very best. But here we see that the test that Jesus is giving, as Jesus tests the discipleship of his disciples, that they're not as mature 
they're not as advanced as they think they are. Namely, Peter, as he is the spokesman here. Here, Christ is giving the test. He's teaching the lesson. And Peter thinks he's ready to ace the test. Peter speaks up. He speaks for the apostles. And when he does, he reveals to all of us in all the world just exactly how spiritually immature they are. I don't say that to put him down at all. Verse 22, then Peter took him aside. This is authority action. This is parent language. Like you take your little one's hand and say, you follow me. We, we go to the side or we need to go to a new room. It's time for a talk. That's what Peter's doing here. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. What's Peter saying? He's saying, Jesus, what are you talking about? This isn't the plan. What Peter's expressing is that, no, 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 no. That's not the plan. The plan is that you are our king. You will overthrow the Roman government and we'll see God's reign now, here and now. And as others will ask, one would like to sit at the right hand and the other on the left. And that's not the case. They're, they don't understand what Jesus is saying. We've seen Peter at his best. And it's a reminder to us just how quickly we can fall, how fast we can fall. As we see Peter and witness Peter's supreme confession in the previous verses, and now see him rebuke the Son of God. Friends, lest, lest we like sit today in our pew and we're like eating our popcorn, we're like, yeah, I just can't believe Peter is such a, what a moron. No, friends, friends, this is us. Lest we sit in judgment of Peter and you're just consuming information here this morning. Friends, when Christ doesn't work according to our plan, we begin to rebuke him at times. Or we just don't pray at all. We get mad at him and we just say, I'm done with you for a while, God. I'm going to go do things my own way. And how does that work out? So lest we simply look at the text and say, my goodness, Peter, what an idiot. Wow. I, I can't believe he missed it. Verse 22, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Peter, you're rebuking the Son of God. Notice verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter has just said. Now what are you doing? You're rebuking the Son of God. This word rebuke means to reprove, to censure, to speak sternly, seriously, to warn, to stop. So on the one hand, we find here that the disciples' understanding about Jesus is they, they understand and confess that He is the Christ, but man, they have a long ways to go. They do not understand that He is the suffering servant. They do not understand that these Old Testament texts, the promise of the gospel, Genesis 3, and walking through the Old Testament, that they're all screaming Jesus. That they're all speaking of Jesus. This Jesus, whom Peter is now rebuking. John 5, 39, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures, for you think that you have eternal life. And these things are they which testify of me. These Scriptures that you're studying, the Old Testament, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, the Torah, the things that you've memorized, what you don't understand is that they, they're talking about me. They testify of me. And here Peter's response completely reveals his misunderstanding, his ignorance, that he's out of step with his confession that he's just made. Don't miss that. 
I'm going to say that again. Peter's response here is that he's revealing that his life, his testimony, is out of step with the confession about Christ that he's just made. Oh my goodness. So we wear our, our crosses on our necks and have bumper stickers on our car and rage against those who cut us off in traffic. Just to give a dumb, silly example. Oh my, may the Holy Spirit of God just kind of help us to step back and examine our hearts and follow the psalmist's admonition in Psalm 139 to search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me to where, Lord, help me to see where my, my life and my words and my actions are not consistent with what I confess right now with God's people on Sunday morning at 1150. Should have said that. Now some of you know what time it is and how far away we are from lunch. May the Lord help us here. Peter's struggling. And we struggle. Peter's incorrect in his estimation of, of Christ. He underestimates Christ. And he overestimates himself. Again, Peter underestimates who Christ is and what he's doing. And he overestimates himself, and so do we. And every day, we must put that to death. Every day, we must recognize that it's not leaning, as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, lean not into your own understanding, but in all your, way, all, excuse me, all your ways, acknowledge him, all. And he, then he will direct your path. See, that's the battle of sanctification. That's the battle. May the Lord help us to win that battle. The reply of Peter. Thirdly, verse 23, we see the rebuke of Christ. What does he say? How does, how does Jesus respond to this? He handles it accurately. Christ is not emotional. He's not threatened by Peter's misunderstanding or underestimation. Christ sees what's really going on here. Jesus sees what Peter cannot see. What Peter cannot see is that there's someone whispering in his ear. That someone is Satan. The rebuke of Christ, verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Peter's rebuke was unholy. That's why Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. That is not to say that Scripture does not teach that a, a believer can be indwelt by a demon or by Satan. That's not what we're talking about here. But as, we're on, we're on difficult, difficult ground, no doubt. And it's the ground of sometimes our thinking is satanic. Sometimes our words are ungodly. Sometimes we find ourselves marching, as Peter finds himself marching, to not just the beat of a different drummer, but to the beat of Satan. More about that in a, in a little bit in our application, but this is unholy. And Peter doesn't even realize it's unholy. He is on dangerous ground. Yes, the text literally shows that Jesus is looking him in the face and saying, get behind me, Satan. Jesus is calling Peter Satan, what a rebuke. 
It's not only unholy. Verse 23, you find it's unhelpful. You are an offense to me, Peter. Stop, cease, desist. For you are not mindful of the things of God at this moment, but of the things of men. This word offense in verse 23 means you are being a stumbling block to me, Satan. And I, I, Peter, Satan, and I will not tolerate it. I will not entertain it. I will not give it an inch in my thinking. I will not listen to it anymore. What a rebuke. The rebuke of Christ. When does this happen? Well, it happens often, but friends, when you begin to get out of God's word, Paul writes in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that you offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is your reasonable service and Negatively, do not be conformed by this world, its ways, its thinking. But rather, as opposed to that, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How? By the Word of God. When we're not doing that, we start acting like this. We're not talking about salvific issues. We're not talking about losing our salvation. But there are seasons of just, we're, we're out of the Word. We're not walking in the Spirit. We're not bearing the fruit of the Spirit. We're thinking carnally. We're thinking in, in the, the mindset of the old man, the flesh which does not comprehend the things of God as our former man was. We begin to take up those old patterns, those old ways. We begin to be influenced. I think the thing that we all underestimate, don't miss this please, is that you, friend, all of you, all of us, we are way more influenced by our fallen culture than we even realize. Than we would ever dare to admit or imagine. I don't have the statistics fresh in front of me, but I want to say the last time I read it was that the average person sees like 3,000 plus ads a day in cumulative, in aggregate, through all the different means and sources. And you don't even know it. That number may stun you. You may say, no, there's no way that's right. Well, giving proof to the fact that you don't realize you're being influenced. Now, I'm not trying to demonize everything that's out there. What, what, what I am trying to say is that we are far more under the thinking and control of this fallen world system that we would ever dare to truly realize. And that's why Satan, excuse me, Peter in this moment, in a precious moment, in a sacred moment, he's already falling and stumbling. There, there is so much here for us, church. You can say it like this, as Jesus preached in Matthew 6 and 7, there is nothing so holy that Satan will not corrupt and misuse. There's no, there's no moment, even here now, that, that is so sacred that Satan won't try to come in and disrupt in the warfare of the Spirit. We need to be on guard. Ephesians 6. We need, to, we need to take up the whole armor of God. Get behind me, Satan. Here Jesus is not talking about a mythical figure who walks around in red tights and has, like he's getting dressed up to go trick-or-treating. That's, that's not who we're talking about here. Satan is a real, literal being, formerly known as Lucifer, who was created to be the archangel of worship. He, he was created as an angel that was over every other angel. He had the unique privilege of being in the presence, the throne room of God, a walking, as Ezekiel describes in Ezekiel 28, among the fiery stones of God, in the Eden of God. He had the privilege and the access to God that no beings ever had outside of the triune Godhead. Isaiah 14, until the day that iniquity was birthed in his heart, found in his heart. Satan despises God. Now let me be clear about something. This is not two gods. This is not good and evil. This is not yin and yang. This is not dualism. No, 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 no. There's one God who reigns. 
He reigns. He reigns in the heavens. In Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 both make clear that He created Satan. He made him Lucifer. He placed him in his place of service. And he was given the, the, the charge to oversee all of God's creation as a steward, like Abraham's servant to go. When Abraham says to his servant, go get a bride for Isaac. Just to give an example. Lucifer was the steward of all that was God's. Until he couldn't stand God. Until he quit worshiping God. Hear me clearly. Get behind me, Satan. This is a literal, real being that hates God. He's powerful, more powerful than you could ever imagine. And he hates you. He hates the church. And there's nothing so sacred and holy than this very moment where Jesus has just said, I will build my church. And already Satan here is whispering. Trying to destroy that. Trying to keep Christ from going to the, to the cross. Well, in conclusion this morning, let's take the last few moments here for points to ponder. Some application. May the Holy Spirit of God help us to take this and apply it to our hearts. Number one, I want us to see this. Number one, authentic discipleship. Like what we see here is these disciples, Peter, are following Jesus. Authentic discipleship has its failures as well as its successes. Authentic discipleship has its failures as well as its successes. It's obvious. So how should this affect us, friends? Oh, how we need the gospel. My security and my hope, my trust is not in my performance, but it's in the finished work of Christ. Peter's hope and trust and security is not in, listen, ultimately his own profession, but in the keeping power of Christ. We'll see, I cannot wait to see the beauty of God's grace in Peter's life and future texts as we see the darkest. This, the, up until now, this is the lowest moment of Peter's life and ministry, but it gets darker. Have you ever had dark days? Mm. Let me just tell all of us here this morning, the gospel is not just for the lost. Gospels for us. And when you have dark days, rest in Christ. Stay humble. Stay hopeful. And rest in Him. Take heed lest you fall. Stay humble in your victories and your triumphs and your successes. Stay hopeful in Christ and your future. Stay humble. Stay hopeful. Secondly, we judge Peter in this text, if we're quick, I've tried to guide us away from that. But compare what we say when we believe, what we say we believe about God in Christ. There's times that our profession and what we say to be true about Christ does not match the reality of our life. Is God still good in difficulty? What about when we come to texts in Scripture that are not easy and we just choose to skip over them? Many people do that. Churches do that. They just stay away from things that are hard. They say, I, I don't like that. My parents didn't like it, and I don't like it. My pastor didn't teach me that growing up, and so I, I'm not going to really worry about it. You know, we judge Peter here, but friends, we, we do. The, to not see our sin in the mirror, James 1, of Scripture, when we come to the Word of God, it is a mirror that shows us reality, and it shows us who we are. 
The lost here this morning who were spiritually blind will simply look at this as like, my goodness, this is just Peter. No, 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 this is us. Scripture shows us our hearts when we look at a text like this. We judge Peter, but compare our hearts in the same way as we see the discrepancy of what we say we believe about God in Christ and sometimes what we actually do. Thirdly, are you trying to serve as the Lord's counselor when you receive truth that you do not like? Do you try to counsel the Lord? Do you try to tell Him what to do? Don't deny it. You know you do. We all say, God, what are you doing? Why, why this? Or why these sequence of events? Or why these things? Do you take the Lord aside and begin to instruct Him or rebuke Him? If you do and you're taking notes, I see many of you are, write down Job 38 verse 1 and just read Job 38. None of us here this morning have suffered more than Job suffered. None of us. And yet Job finally reaches this point to where he tries to be God's counselor. He tries to instruct the Lord. He tries to counsel the Lord. And God sets him straight. Read Job 38. Number four, we greatly underestimate the spiritual forces of this fallen world, namely Satan. In Genesis chapter 3, we won't turn there, but you see Lucifer in the Garden of Eden. You see Satan whispering in Eve's ear. In Matthew chapter 4, we see him whispering in Jesus' ear in the wilderness just before his earthly ministry. And there are themes in Genesis 3, Matthew 4, and even here in Matthew 16. And it's three themes. Number one, self-pity, self-will, self-interest. Genesis 3, self-pity, self-will, self-interest. Matthew 4, Satan is appealing, he's whispering in the ear of Christ, self-pity, self-will, self-interest. Here, Peter is saying, no, what are you talking about? What? No, Jesus, stop that. You're absolutely wrong. And friends, Satan will do it in our hearts as well. Self-pity, self-will, self-interest. As we'll see next week, we have to mortify all of that. Self-pity deny. Self-will, deny. Self-interest, deny. And it's in denying ourselves that we find life in Christ as His disciples. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank You for Your grace and help in our time of need. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for coming alongside and assisting our worship this morning. We pray for our brother Steve again and pray that You will help him and while you'll touch him and that he will receive the care and attention that he needs. We thank you for prompt um, action, Lord, by those who saw quickly and are ministering to him. Father, would you take your word and would you seal it deep within us, seal it in our hearts. The Holy Spirit of God, take it and work, grow, draw us closer to yourself. Would you conform us into the image of Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand together with us. Come 